coming up on The Exam Room. Graduated from medical school, started my residency in internal medicine. And that first year, I just became sort of frustrated and frankly depressed at the fact that my patients that I saw in clinic, they didn't get better. It was sort of like they were in the deep end of a swimming pool, treading water, and I was trying to throw them, you know, flotation devices and just couldn't get them out of the water. And, and so for me, it was, it was very clear at the end of that first year, I thought I have to do something different. This just doesn't feel good to me and doesn't feel right. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Bend, Oregon, Jamaica, Queens in New York, and Kingston, Jamaica. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 58 of season 6, number 454 overall. And we have a first-time guest on the show today. A doctor who has quietly been an enormous supporter of the exam room and the Physicians Committee. Dr. Brooke Bussard is her name, and she has a new book out called Chew on This, Bite-Sized Stories of Nutrition. And the cool thing about this book is that it helps with something that a lot of us struggle with. And that's the idea of eating healthy, introducing it, or even a plant-based diet to people who are skeptical or just downright unfamiliar. I mean, think about it. How often have you brought it up and then you get the typical, yeah, but response? It's that immediate boom obstacle right there. Well, the book helps us get past that hurdle and hopefully make a difference in someone's life so that you can give an explanation for the things that people are curious or even stubborn about when it comes to healthy eating. Very cool book. But really, I think the part of the conversation that I most enjoyed is just getting Dr. Bussard's story. She's got a heck of a story. She's someone who went to a really well-respected medical school, the University of Virginia, and she graduates, she starts working, she's on the fast track to success, but very quickly she became disillusioned by what it was she was witnessing. So despite the fact that many consider what she had to be the opportunity of a lifetime, she decides to walk away. She walked away. And that takes enormous guts to do. But for her, there was something that was just missing. And the way that the system was set up, I mean, it just did not fit Dr. Bussard. So she makes this huge change. She takes a major leap of faith and she never looks back. She trusted that there was a better way, a healthier way for her. And boy, was she ever right. Such a cool story coming up. And then after our interview, I have details for you on a brand new study that shows how making changes to your diet can turn off those so-called fat genes. 
We hear so much about how our genes make up our BMI, but how about changing your diet to turn those genes off? Pretty cool. Interesting results there and a little bit of understanding for those of us who have gone up and down the scale and up and down the scale our entire lives. I mean, who really hasn't struggled with their weight at one point or another? Am I right? Can I get an amen? Amen. But before we get into that, this is the last call, the absolute last call to join us in New York on July 12th for the exam room live and in person. Join me, Dr. Neil Barnard, Rip Esselstyn, Dr. Robert Osfeld, Dr. Michelle McMacken. We're all going to be there to present the most heart healthy night of your life. We only have one goal that night, and that is to give you the tools and the knowledge that you need to prevent or even reverse the number one leading cause of death in the United States. And that is heart disease. Such a great night. And there's going to be some amazing conversation. We're going to tell you about some amazing research. We're going to give you all the tips you need. And doggone it, if nothing else, the food's fantastic. And it is quite refreshing to be in a room where you are surrounded by people who also embrace the same kind of values about nutrition that you do, right? There's just some kind of special energy and being in a plant-based environment. So it's really cool. Come on out, have some fun. We are going to be at the Museum of the City of New York near Central Park, and you'll get the opportunity to meet my dad as well. He's going to be in the house. And to be perfectly honest with you, I am nervous about that. So come and show me out and raise your health IQ as we create the most heart healthy night of your life. Tickets are available at pcrm.org slash events or click that link in the episode notes. But right now, let's get to it with Dr. Bussard, the brave doctor who blazed her own trail, followed her own heart, followed the research, and now is helping us all understand how to help others get a better understanding about healthy eating. It is so good to see you here. Long overdue. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. I got to ask you, not a lot of people go to medical school, get ready to become a doctor, and then make that hard pivot into becoming a health coach. Before we get into chew on this, let's talk about that decision. What went into it? Well, Chuck, it really wasn't a hard decision for me. I think it was harder for the people around me, but it was very clear to me um, you know, I started med school in the um, nine, 1990s. Um, I was so excited about pursuing a career in medicine. And, you know, those first two years you spend uh, in lectures, anatomy lab, pathology lab, um, and you learn so much great information. I love, love, love the human body and thinking about the way that it works. Um, and then in your third and fourth years, you switch and you start seeing patients and you put in really long hours, you're sleep deprived, um, and you're looking for ways to, you know, make yourself feel better, whether it's with caffeine or, you know, swinging by the GI clinic to take, um, you know, proton pump inhibitors for, you know, reflux, all of those things. Um, and I, I was still enjoying seeing the patients and graduated from medical school, started my, my residency in internal medicine. And that first year, I just became um, 
you know, sort of frustrated and frankly depressed um, at the fact that my patients that I saw in clinic just, um, you know, they, they didn't get better. It was sort of like they were in the deep end of a swimming pool treading water and I was trying to throw them, um, you know, flotation devices and just, you know, couldn't, couldn't get them out of the water. And, mm. and so for me, it was, it was very clear at the end of that first year, I thought I have to do something different. This just doesn't feel good to me and doesn't feel right. What, what do you think is that disconnect with your patients? And we hear these stories all the time. Um, what is this disconnect that's preventing patients from having, you know, these types of turnarounds that it sounds like you as an up and coming doctor were craving and really wanting to see? Well, I think it's, and I've heard you talk about it a lot on this show, is the lack of nutrition education in medical schools. I didn't have those tools at all. And, you know, when I shadowed my, you know, um, residents when I was a medical student and shadowed the attendings, like I'd really never heard anybody talk about using food as medicine. And I think that is such a large Um, part of getting healthy that is overlooked. And I just, um, you know, now I think in 2023 with, you know, work from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and organizations like PCRM, you know, we're really trying to get more nutrition education in the med schools, but it's, it's too slow. I know. And, and to be honest with you, sometimes I feel like you know, we get insulated. I've talked about this on the show too. We get insulated in our lifestyle medicine bubble here. And I wonder if that kind of distorts our picture of progress that's being made. Do you think that the up and coming physicians who were maybe just like you in their first year of residency, are they still experiencing these same types of frustrations? Or do you really think that there is now this mega push to start to get some more nutrition education in that medical school curriculum that could really help lend itself then to getting these types of results that we really want to see with patients? Well, I'm an optimist, Chuck, so I am hoping that that there is that push. And I'm hoping that there's enough information just in the world around us, books that are being put out, articles that are being written. I see articles, you know, every week in The New York Times about, you know, eating uh, more plants for better health. And I think the more that our society learns about this and asks their doctors about it or you know the young med students read about it and know about it and inquire with you know their attendings you know i feel like it's this it's going to grow organically it's probably not going to grow straight out of a nutrition um, curriculum in the med schools i got you and speaking of curriculums you you went to school at uva correct you're a cavalier Correct. Wahoo. 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 (laughs) I mean, that's a that's a pretty prestigious uh, university there with a phenomenal medical school program. Um, Did you feel like a bit of a black sheep kind of, you know, waving the white flag in terms of your plans to continue with residency and instead shifting and going into health coaching? Yeah, Chuck, it wasn't pretty. Um, You know, I think. You know, med med schools, they have, you know, only you know, a certain number of spots. And then for the, for the residency programs, uh, 
at the time, there were four people chosen from the med school to go into internal medicine um, in that residency program. And so it was, you know, I took somebody's spot and then I left. And so that was not, you know, smiled upon by any stretch. Hmm. Any regrets with that decision though? There are no regrets. I can't no. imagine. And, I, and can't I imagine. feel like, I mean, the, the, the medical school, it really gave me a phenomenal education and, you know, just really fostered, you know, my love for the human body and my desire to help it thrive um, and just be the best that it can be. And I think that has really pushed me um, toward, you know, finding the best information and the best way of going about making sure every cell in our body has, you know, the best opportunity to do what it's meant to do. And so I guess what really, aside from working with the patients and not seeing these results, like when did the whole idea of nutrition first pop onto your radar? It's like, well, maybe this is kind of that missing link here that could really help move everybody in the right direction. Was there one particular patient you were working with or how did this pop onto your radar at all? Well, it didn't pop onto my radar while I was working with the patients. So when I decided to leave my residency, they had just started, um, this just really tells you <laughs> how long ago this was, they started um, creating a website for the health system. And so I said, oh, I'd be happy to go and you know write medical content for the website. So I started doing that. And then I started to have my own health issues, stomach aches, high blood pressure, just generally not feeling well, gaining weight. Um, and so I started to dig in, why do I feel bad? And that's when the whole world of nutrition opened up. My sister-in-law at the same time um, had her first child who had a lot of food allergies. And it really raised all of this, you know, front and center that food has a tremendous impact on, you know, our health. And so she and I together dug into a lot of, um, you know, a lot of reasons that her daughter was having rashes and having, you know, asthma and allergies and things like that. And it really opened the door um, to learning about plant-based nutrition. And forgive my asking, but how old were you at this point when you started to notice that, hey, my health is kind of in decline here. I need to make some changes myself. Oh, Chuck, that was mid-20s. Like, young. Right. Yeah. And that's that's what really sticks out to me is, like, you would think mid-20s, prime of your life, tip-top health, great condition, like, maybe we'll never be better another day in your life because that's when the bodies are supposed to be at their prime, or at least that's what we're told. Um that's it. That's quite the wake up call. I remember having kind of the same epiphany myself when I was that that young and, and not thinking I was going to live to see 30. And it doesn't sound like your conditions were necessarily that dire, but it still is a drag on you mentally to think I'm already backsliding here in my 20s. Like what is going on here? It's really it's interesting to look back. I mean, I feel better now for sure than I did um, when I was in my twenties, and I, you know, I, I, I look back and I think, what was I eating? I think I was eating a lot of, 
yogurt and chicken and, you know, drinking lattes with cow's milk and um, all of the things that now we know, you know, don't promote good health, but, but they were sold as health promoting foods, you know, when I was in my twenties and, you know, a lot of times still are today, um, but we just have so much more information about them. They are. I'm curious, were you a, a nutrition or I shouldn't say nutrition nerd, a research nerd? Were you always trying to keep up with the latest studies as they were being published when you were in your residency infancy, so to speak? And in med school, like I was known for being like the queen of resources. Like <laughs> I would spend so much time in the library scouring for articles and studies and, you know, searching PubMed for resources. And um, I have always really enjoyed that, actually. And how many of these studies do you recall early on that really focused on the connection between diet and diseases? Was there an abundance of them as there are today? No, certainly not. No, I feel like when I first stumbled upon um, the research for plant-based nutrition, it was a lot of um, Dr. Barnard's research, Dr. Esselstyn's research, um, Dr. Ornish, um, you know, sort of those, you know, foundational studies that, you know, really started to, to turn the tide for us. And let's talk about some of the patients that you remember visiting with and those frustrations that you had, like, why aren't they getting better here? What is the major problem there? Um, I'm, do you recall some of the conversations that were maybe a little bit more frustrating for you? Um, maybe it was chronic hypertension. Um, maybe it was, uh, diabetes. Maybe it was just, I don't know, but like, what were the ones that really got your blood boiling? And then I promise you, I promise you, we're going to make the conversation positive. Just bear with me. Let's go into the dark and then we're going to come okay. back out into the light. Okay. Cause you know, these patients, they were wonderful, wonderful people. And, and I think that's why it really, it really broke my heart because they would come in and, you know, I would see them every three months or every six months, depending on what their issues were, you know, they'd have diabetes, obesity, hypertension, oftentimes all three of them. And, you know, be like, doc, I've been taking my meds, but you know, nothing seems to be working. Uh, my sugars are still going up or my blood pressure is still high when I'm checking it at home. And I remember my attendings just saying, well, a lot of times with, with, you know, hypertension, it might take two or three hypertension meds just for hypertension alone to manage the situation. That's not even counting the meds that they're taking for their diabetes or, you know, for their reflux. And, you know, some of these patients would be taking, you know, eight or nine medications every day. And, you know, it was just this layering on of things when they kept coming back in, instead of peeling off like I do now. I mean, I don't actually do the peeling off. I help guide my, pa my clients. I don't even call them patients, my clients. I help them you know, reverse disease and work with their physicians to, you know, come off of these medications. It's the exact opposite. So, yeah, let's talk about that. What do you think the net difference would have been back then if they were prescribed, say, three healthy meals in, um, 
in place of those eight or nine different medications. What, do you think that they would have seen the same type of results? Totally. I mean, I think those are the same types of patients that I'm seeing now 20 years later. And I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. I'm One of my favorite um, clients who I uh, worked with right before and during COVID, he, he was diagnosed with diabetes um, right before COVID started. And it was somebody that I knew from uh, a local bank. And he said, Brooke, um, he called me up and he said, Brooke, I, um, I've heard you talk about what you do and I've always thought it was ridiculous, but I think I need your help. And I said, oh, really? Okay, um, you know, tell me what's going on. And he said, well, I was just diagnosed with diabetes. My hemoglobin A1C is 9.6. And, you know, I really want to turn this around. And I mean, for this to come on suddenly with a hemoglobin A1C that's that high, I mean, that's very dramatic. And I will tell you, Chuck, he locked it in like I have never seen anyone lock it in. Ate nothing but a beautiful, well-balanced plant-based diet for about six months. And his A1C was lower than mine after six months. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, mine's in the normal range, but he was sub 5% for his hemoglobin A1C. <laughs> so, okay. Well, let's, like, oh my God. What a turnaround, right? And to see those results. And the thing that kind of makes me laugh is that, you know, you get this admission um, from people who are like, you know, I thought what you were doing was kind of silly or funny or weird or just bizarre. Um, but then when somebody gets to a point when they really do need to start making some changes to their health, it's like, well, I'm willing to try anything. And then suddenly this unique, bizarre, outside the box, weirdo concept um, becomes the solution that they've been looking for this whole time. I guess my question is, I mean, how do we shift the conversation from kind of being this niche little corner of the health universe to really making it kind of mainstream and okay and accepted and strip away that taboo and that stigma so that people really can draw this, this simple conclusion that it's what you put into your body, you know, start there. Like, how do we really just make it so accepted and not so stigmatized? I think we just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, we have, I think we have over 300 food for life instructors now, don't we? Yeah, it um, sounds about right. Yeah. And so I think um, doing, doing classes in the community, um, you know, just growing it organically, I think can go a really long way. Once we sort of reach a critical mass of people, you know, that's when you start to really shift the tide. And I think, um, you know, like the book that I just wrote, Chew on This, I, I wrote that to try to help educate and inform people who might not otherwise be aware because they don't care for, you know, reading nonfiction or, you know, um, digging into research or studies or things like that. So I think just any way we can think of to try to spread the word is really our best, uh, our best approach. And that's what I really like about this book is it, it is kind of unlike any other that I've read in that 
it, it to me seems like this is how you reach somebody one-on-one. We're not talking about big time articles in the New York Times or another major documentary or anything like that. This is like grassroots one-on-one conversations with people who you care about introducing them to the idea likely for the very first time about what a healthy diet actually looks like that's why you call i guess that's why you called it chew on this right it's kind of food for thought right 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 yeah so you know one of the things that i gravitated to in the book initially was the chapter that you wrote on counting calories you know, and it's two longtime friends and, you know, they, uh, the one was an avid calorie counter, but then the other one starts explaining the difference between how the body uses 300 calories of broccoli versus 300 calories from cookies and just kind of the light bulb that goes off there. I mean, these are really kind of cool. These actually also could happen in real life conversations here. So, um, is that kind of what your idea was? Like, I want to make sure that we have conversations that could actually be happening in any doctor's office, any room in anybody's house across the world. Yes. So my, my hope and my goal was to, first of all, present the information um, in a new way and try to capture these conversations that that I have very, very frequently with clients, family members, friends, um, just people that I run into at my kid's school um, and, and share them. And for people who already eat plant-based, I thought, well, if they wanted to read the book and feel more confident in the conversations that they have with people, uh, because I do have some good friends who are plant-based, but they, tell me that it's it's hard for them to explain it to other people or to justify why they're you know eating plants and you know not eating dairy and by i think giving these examples and um, showing these conversations it will give them more um you know sort of more ammunition when when they're looking for answers to questions that people ask them. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's that's the key here. It's um, It really is a book for people who are new to this entire concept. Um, and as you said, for those of us who are kind of veterans in the health arena, how also to have these conversations to move the needle. Brooke, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from listeners and viewers, exam roomies who say, you know, I just can't seem to get my friends and my family to understand what it is I'm trying to do here and why I'm doing it. And I think that this book, Chew On This, can actually really help in that direction. Um, Were any of these conversations potentially based off of any experience that you had when you were a resident or during your time since then as a health coach? Uh, A lot of it is, you know, my time as a health coach. And I was trying also to tie in. So the, the one that you talked about, the 300 calories of broccoli versus cookies, I was trying to also tie in some of those great studies that are out there, but not actually present the study. Because for some people, when I give a lecture or, you know, I'm teaching a class, 
I have found that the listeners, the students, they often get bogged down if I get into too much science. So it's better to present it in a way like I'm describing in the book. So I, in the back of my head, I'm thinking of, you know, Hannah Kaliova's study on, um, you know, plant-based foods and metabolism. I'm thinking of Kevin Hall's study where he looked at processed foods and, you know, the difference in the amount of calories people eat when they eat processed food versus whole plant foods. You know, I'm thinking of these studies in the background of my head as I'm writing the, the dialogue, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Absolutely. It does. Um, and it was kind of refreshing to read one of these books and not see like 18 gajillion different studies like sourced in there. So you can go in there and, and like dive in and, and like really do a deep dive. This is like surface level um, introductory stuff, but that's what makes it so daggone powerful in my opinion. I'm curious, how did you choose the topics that you did for the various chapters. I mean, protein, that seems like a given. Everybody's always wondering about that, no matter how many times you and I or anybody else who e eats a plant-based diet talks about this. It always seems to be a number one, probably the first question that comes up. That's why it's the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's the first chapter. <laughs> But then inflammation was number two. Did you put that there as the second because you feel like it is so important that people understand the concept of inflammation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as the science is showing us, inflammation is sort of at the core of a lot of these disease processes. And I think it's important for people to try to wrap their head around inflammation. And that's why I put it second. Yeah. And how do you get somebody to really understand inflammation initially? Because it's not really a term that's thrown around too terribly much, right? You don't say, oh, my inflammation's acting up today or, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, man, I really got heartburn or, oh, you know, this condition is really flared up today or that. But inflammation... Um, it's just, uh, it, it hasn't really found its way to the top of the list. So when you're describing it in the book, how would you first introduce somebody to the concept of what inflammation actually is? And then to that point, also how it's really driven much of the time by your diet. Yes. Yeah, so that's why I start out that chapter. And I must say that um, Dorothy Windham did the illustrations for the book, and I was so happy to find her and connect with her. We had so much fun. And I started the second chapter, Inflammation, with a boy falling down the stairs as he was um, looking at his cell phone. And that's a story that happened to, um, to a friend of mine. Her daughter actually fell up the stairs while she was texting and broke her foot. Um, but so... Um, this, this young man is falling down the stairs and twists his ankle. So I started that chapter um, with a form of inflammation that people can actually see, which is a swollen ankle. And then I tried to show people that you can have inflammation that you see, like a swollen ankle, or inflammation that you don't see, like what's happening in your blood vessels when you eat foods that irritate the endothelial cells that line your blood vessels. So I want people to understand that it's the same process. The immune system is trying to protect you. It's trying to heal damage. And so um, 
a lot of people, they think, you know, oh, I want to have a better immune system. I want to have better immunity. But a lot of times they don't really know why or what that means. So, so thinking about it concretely, like when you, you know, twist your ankle, I think is a good way to start. And knowing that the immune system sends cells there to repair any tissue that got damaged when you sprain your ankle. Well, the same thing happens. You eat foods that are irritating to the lining of your GI tract, to the lining of your blood vessels, um, and your immune system responds to that, sends cells there to repair it. And sometimes that can lead to a disease process um, like cardiovascular disease because you have all these white cells in there. Um, and like that's not a normal process. Like We don't want that to happen. And so you end up laying down plaques which cause atherosclerosis, which is the uh, you know reason people have heart disease. That's so cool. You've literally just taken an analogy that basically everybody understands. That's a swollen ankle. You twisted it. You turned it. It's banged up. You get the swelling. You get the inflammation. But then you turn it. You internalize it, and then be. And, and you're able to draw the parallel between that and a lot of these chronic diseases. You were just talking about atherosclerosis, right? Heart disease. I mean, like, that's huge. And to be able to take it from something that's so well understood and then apply that to something that's, eh, you know, we, we talk about it, we know about it, but we don't quite understand it. That's awesome. That's the power of this book. And you also have in here a chapter on bacteria. I mean, you know, I have Dr. Will Bolsowitz on here all the time for totally. a reason <laughs> because people are fascinated by gut bacteria and they don't understand it. I can only imagine the way that you've laid this out in the book will really help people really wrap their heads around that as well. Chuck, yeah, I put the bacteria chapter third because the bacteria have a role in the inflammation too. And uh, I won't give too much away, um, but Dr. Uh, Bolsowitz has talked many times about the short chain fatty acids that the bacteria make that have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but I think, you know, a common theme here is that there are concepts that are very hard to wrap your head around because you can't see them. You can't see the process that's going on in your blood vessels. You can't see these little bacteria that live in the GI tract. And I often think about that movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, man, it's been a minute since I thought about that one. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I love to think about, um, you know, sort of being this little tiny person or thing who could go into my body and look inside my blood vessels, look inside my GI tract and look at those cells and say, hey, how are you doing? Are you healthy? Or are you not healthy? Um, do you like what I've been putting in here? Um, how is that, you know, food treating you? Um, so I think I sort of had this strange way of thinking about the body and the cells and the vessels and um, but I do it from this perspective of, you know, honey, I shrunk the kids, which is, I think, I think fun if people can wrap their head around that. 
Oh, I mean, come on. Who doesn't like that movie? I mean, that may have been Rick Moranis' best work ever, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but then these other chapters here, I mean, you've got one on carbs, which I'm sure is always a big talker. Real foods, why it's important to opt for the real food as opposed to uh, the ultra processed. Did you choose real over whole because you thought that that's an easier word for people to understand and maybe even not get whole food confused with the grocery store? Um, yeah, I just thought it was more accessible. I just thought it was, um, um, yeah, I just thought it was a better word for people to, uh, to wrap their head around. And then fat and then milk and then cooking and genes, DNA, not being, uh, destiny and then planet. But I want to kind of wrap up our conversation today with chapter 10. And I think that this is such an important concept because it really does help bring into focus everything that I'm sure you talk about with your patients as a health coach and everything that's covered in this book. And that is right here, Vitamins and Minerals, Chapter 10, Best in Their Natural Form. Why is it better to get something in its natural form as opposed to a supplement? How does the body treat that differently? Well, that is something that has certainly um, evolved and some light has been shed on that over the years if we just think about vitamin E. When vitamin E was, um, you know, people started to take vitamin E as a supplement, they were really only taking one type of vitamin E. And it turns out there's, I think, eight types of vitamin E. And so people were getting all of this one type of vitamin E and their body, even if it ate foods that had vitamin E, didn't absorb the, the uh, vitamin E from the foods because it was like, oh, well, I have enough vitamin E. And it turned out that it was deleterious to their health because they were only getting a fraction of the, type, the types of vitamin E that they needed. Um, so I think they're really the answer to that question is there's so much that we don't know about all the phytonutrients that go into all of the whole foods that we eat and when we try to just extract certain uh, vitamins or minerals or compounds um, we just don't know what else we might be missing um, so i think that's one of the huge dangers of doing that we do know that places around the world where people eat whole plant foods as their, as their diet, they live the longest, healthiest lives. So getting all of our nutrients from whole foods just makes sense. If we look around, you know, epidemiolo epidemiologically. Um, so I just, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, trying to say, oh, this is a superfood or this is a super nutrient and we should take it as a pill in high doses. I think it's really important just to, to use the whole plant food because, you know, there is such a, um, you know, a combination of nutrients that probably work as a symphony instead of just having, you know, a drum solo. <laughs> I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Anyway, not that there's anything wrong with a good drum solo. I still remember <laughs> Inagata DeVita. That was like a five-minute drum solo that was just epic. Um, but I, I got you, and I love the way that you put that. And it's just so brilliant. The entire book is brilliant. Um, chew on this. We've dropped a link to it in the show description and in the episode notes. Definitely want to pull up your copy, get a copy. And you know what I love about this, too, is like, 
I was reading this and I was like, you know what? If this is something that parents wanted to speak to their kids about and introduce it this way, the way that the book is written, it's not on a level that will go over the child's head. Like I would think that beginning like even as young as like the sixth or seventh grade, like a lot of these concepts can start to be understood when the child is young. And I think that that sets them up for a much healthier future as well. I agree, Chuck, and I'm glad that you that you think so as well. I really tried to write it on a level that was accessible pretty much from middle school till, you know, the rest of your life. I think um, these concepts, it's, it's really, it's not a book about dieting. It's a book about how the body works and how to choose foods that are health promoting and not health hindering. And um, so that was my goal was, you know, just to make it sort of an entertaining guide to healthy eating. I think that you nailed it. You're not talking up to anybody. You're not talking down to anybody. It's just right. You know, it's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears, too hot, too cold, just right. You know, Um, so I I absolutely think that you nailed it. And so uh, everybody go out and pick up your copy. Chew on this. Dr. Brooke Boussard, thank you so much. Congratulations on the release. Thanks, Chuck. I really appreciate it. It's your friend, Rip Esselstyn. Come get Plan Strong with me on July 12th in New York City. I'll be helping to celebrate an incredible 14 million downloads of the Exam Room Podcast with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. My doctor friends, Neil Barnard and Robert Osfeld will also be there to make a toast to the most heart healthy night of your life. Lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, lower the risk of heart disease or even reversing it. Plus foods and tips that will help get you to chart a new course to a healthier future. But to get there, you have to be there in New York City, the Big Apple. Don't wait, get your tickets today, and I'll see you on July 12th. Congratulations, Chuck, and now let's all get Plant Strong together. Thank you, Rip. Looking forward to seeing you, my friend. And hopefully looking forward to seeing you as well. Tickets are available at pcrm.org slash events, or just click that link in the episode notes. And again, this is the last call to join us. Come on out and say hi. You can meet my dad and you can learn things from some amazing, amazing people. Even Chef Lauren Kretzer will be with us that night. Lauren, she's a cancer survivor turned thriver and someone who is exquisitely talented in the kitchen and has all kinds of tips to keep you healthy and cooking deliciously. So if you get the opportunity to mix and mingle with Lauren, I highly, highly, highly recommend that. You know, on the last episode of the show, Dr. Barnard and I, we were talking about fat. He was on the exam room live last Wednesday and all different kinds of fat, the four main kinds of fat and how they each impact your health. And I found it coincidental as fate would have it that the very next morning, a study crossed my desk that I thought was pretty interesting and I wanted to share with you. And this one is out of the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. And it looks at how what they call dietary restraint can, quote, significantly reduce effects of genetic risk of obesity. So the first thing that you need to know is that the so-called fat gene, it's real. It's very real. In fact, 
Researchers have identified over 900 genes that are linked to your body size. And these genes, they can impact hunger and your ability to stop eating when you are full. And these are also the very same genes that often get manipulated by ultra-processed and fast food. That's what gets us into trouble. So what these researchers did was they wanted to examine two forms of dietary restraint on these obesity genes. And so they looked at rigid dietary restrictions that involved strict calorie counting, and then also more flexible restrictions that really only put a focus on general mindful eating practices. And they looked at how both avenues can impact a person's eating behavior. And so we got some good news out of this. We really, really, really did. Both seem to have positive outcomes for reducing BMI scores among people who had obesity genes. And so what researchers did here was pull data from two massive cohorts in the UK that included close to 3,800 people, people between the ages of 22 and 92. And they looked at their height, they looked at their weight, and also looked at DNA samples to determine their genetic risk for obesity. And much to the surprise of absolutely no one, the study shows that the people who had the highest risk of obesity, genetically speaking, also tended to have a higher BMI. And much of that, researchers say, is because of what they call heightened levels of disinhibition and hunger. It's kind of a fancy way of saying an inability, really, to stop eating when a person is full or goes on a binge eating fest or is eating for emotional reasons. But they also found that high levels of dietary restraint can cut the risk of inhibition in half and then also slash eating past full so not being able to control yourself when you're hungry cuts that down by a third. Those are big drops. And they found that there was promise from both the flexible and rigid approaches here. So a lot of promise coming out of this study. But does that mean that this is easy? No. This is just lip service right now. I'm just telling you what the data was. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to put it into practice. But I can tell you this from my own personal experience. Where there's a will, there's a way. And with practice, in time, you can improve the mental aspect of eating so that you can improve your overall health. You can improve your well-being. You can improve your BMI. But again, it is never, ever, ever, ever easy to navigate the sea of fat and calories that we are all sailing in. I mean, really, doesn't it feel that way sometimes? It's like we're on the good ship health, but we're floating along in the sea of French fries on our way to Donut Island. I mean, temptation is everywhere. But despite that, Despite the temptation, we don't have to do a cannonball over the side into an ocean of grease or go and sunbathe on a Boston cream beach. We just don't have to do that. We have a choice, and once we employ that discipline, it gets easier with time. 
And as the study shows, no matter what your genetic makeup is, no matter how many of those 900 or so so-called fat genes you have, you can see results. Hard stop there. Absolutely. And I have dropped a link for you to check out the study for yourself if you are so inclined in the episode notes. And don't forget, by the way, if you feel like you've raised your health IQ by a point or two today, please take a moment, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. Make sure that you subscribe or follow the exam room by the Physicians Committee. And most importantly, leave a five-star rating and a nice review. That's how we continue to get this information to the ears of people who need it the most. The people who think that no matter what they do, they cannot conquer their so-called fat genes. We need them to know that genes are not their destiny. We need them to know that their dreams for their health can come true. And we want to bring this information to them so they can raise their health IQs to the highest, highest, highest reaches. And they too can go on and be a health superstar. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the incredible Dr. Brooke Boussard for being here, raising our health IQs and sharing her book with us. Chew on this. Go out, get your copy, order it. There's a link to do so in the episode notes and move the needle for nutrition in the life of someone you care about. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.